Hello, this is the first episode of the third season of the broadcast system. Now, how far that is even a useful designation is very much up for grabs, but that is what uh, we are going with for both convenience and for ease of my filing. Uh, looking back, I uh, noticed, having recorded the Christmas special, uh, that uh, both the Christmas special and the last normal episode. Are we going to call them normal? I think uh, I think that's a dangerous game. Anyway, uh, they both featured uh, Kilburn stories, which had Agatha Maud telling a story in them. And they also both featured uh, Simon Kane singing A Simple Fork Supper. Am I going to apologise for that? No, should I? I don't think so. Anyway, see one. So today, what we'll have is, uh, we'll have a slightly longer episode than was traditional under the earlier iteration, because, you know, we're only going out once a week. So we will have a Kilburn story, and we will have uh, something to leaven that. And uh, today we've got Anna Savory. You will be delighted to learn, as well as uh, a song from Susanna Pierce and Tim Sutton. And uh, I will definitely uh, put in something from the Mighty Finn songbook because I think it would be disappointing and feel wrong not to. But that will all come in a second. So uh, today's Kilburn story, rather brilliantly, uh, but, but entirely coincidentally, is a January tale uh, and it comes from January in, uh, in, in a year well, I mean, you can tell from what happens that is, a, you know, it's a long way before now. I can't remember which year exactly. We're probably talking something like 2015 or 2016 by this point. Ah, it's January, people. Uh, it was January. Like I said, it was January. People are detoxing or detoxing. You take your pick. Uh, dieting, so on. And there has been some excellent uh, local diet news. Uh, a, a, this brilliant restaurant opened up last year, uh, just in Queen's Park, uh, down over there, for those of you who, who don't know Kilburn, and I pointed towards Queen's Park. I'm going to stop doing this commentary. Uh, it's not interesting. It's not helpful to anyone. Uh, it's called Fad for the Day, this new restaurant, and everyone's something these days, vegetarian, pescatarian, whatever, and uh, okay, maybe that is annoying if you're cooking for different people who are intolerant of different things, so on, but it's obviously massively more annoying every day if you happen to genuinely have celiac disease and a you have to ask people to cater especially for you and b people assume you're trouble and quote that new yorker article which says there's no basis in science for gluten gluten intolerance uh, so fad for the day this place is a restaurant where whatever issues you have uh, you can go and eat anything you like from the menu so long as you choose the right day. Monday, no gluten. Tuesday, no dairy. Wednesday, no sugar. Thursday is pasta night. Friday is no nuts. Saturday is no meat. Sunday, you can have anything you like so long as it's kedgeri. Anyway, it's incredibly popular and buzzy. And so uh, my uh, our local... I mean, it's hard to know exactly what to call her. This terrible woman I know called Emma, who nonetheless all my friends are obsessed with and keep in touch with so we know what awful thing she's done now. She's booked to go there. Uh, not She did book to go there not long before Christmas. And Emma went 
because her nail technician, Grace, who is a beautiful Nigerian woman, was spotted in fad for the day by a guy who runs a model agency specialising in yummy mummies, uh, which we, we, that, that means 30 to 40 year old models. It's a booming market, basically. Uh, 50 something women are rich and want to buy dresses modelled by 35 year olds instead of by 20 year olds. That's the uh, marketing reason for this in case you're interested. Emma always thought that she should probably have been a model and so she went to the restaurant in order to uh, get spotted and she went on a Thursday night, pasta night, and she got the menu and she said can I see the specials and they said that's everything right there and she said actually I'm glucose intolerant, that's gluten and lactose, so I eat off menu. Uh, I'm afraid we don't serve off menu, said the waiter. You have to, I'm glucose intolerant. I'm very sorry to hear that, but I'm afraid you will have to eat somewhere else. You literally have to serve me, she said. It's the law. No, it isn't. Emma was shouting by now, and the owner, who is an Australian guy called Bill, who we all want to be friends with, and who sort of gives the impression that you might actually be his friend, because he always remembers you if you've been to fad for the day even just once, uh, he came out of the uh, kitchen and asked her to leave. She said she would sit there all night. Make me an egg white omelette, she said. Uh, Bill could have served her an egg white omelette, except uh, like, he's great, but like, he's a real person. And, and he's not, you know, people don't like just bowing down to people who are being idiots. He's definitely not easygoing. Uh, and the whole point of this restaurant is that it's a restaurant which doesn't have to deal with fats. Its schedule is right there in the window. So he said no, and he just served around her. He didn't physically pick her up because he could see she was trouble. And uh, so she just sat there fuming. All the other diners left. Bill said he was locking up. Emma thought of sitting there all night, but her iPhone had run out of batteries, so she didn't. But she did write a series of incredibly scathing reviews of the restaurant online and on Twitter. Uh, Bill found these, obviously, the internet is the internet, and and people pointed them out to him. They, I mean, they were little short of libel. Uh, well, well, I mean, they were libel, but it's very hard to do anything about comments online. And all he could do was to complain to everyone who came in or who he spoke to about this woman. And Grace, who eats in fad for the day from time to time, told Bill not to worry about Emma and explained what an awful trout she is and how Emma only went there in the first place because she's trying to break into the yummy mummy modelling market. And Bill, who is, like I said, who is a vengeful sort of animal, had an idea. He arranged a fad diet week for January, which was a great marketing wheeze anyway, and he sent Emma an email offering to bury the hatchet and apologizing and saying that she could have a free meal at his sold out homeo vegetarian diet night on January the 6th. Homeo vegetarian food is the perfect detoxing diet cleanse. He explained it's the super trick that the celebs won't even let be in the papers. It's eating water, which vegetables have been cooked in. Uh, and the traces of vegetable which remain are inexplicably more nutritious than the whole vegetables would be. Could she believe that? Yeah, she said. 
I bet you can, he said. Emma said, yes, she would come so long as he could guarantee 100% that it was glucose free. And he said he could guarantee that. So on the day in question, she arrived and the restaurant was packed with Bill's friends who were all in on the gag. Uh, I know, because I was there. And Emma sat down and, uh, you know, we nodded to her. Uh, but like we didn't engage. She doesn't really know me. Well, I mainly follow her from a semi distance. I keep her at arm's length. But uh, she had to say hi to uh, to, to my mate. Uh, to, 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 well, to my mate who I was with, uh, who, who she knows a bit a bit better, who's a journalist. Uh, and anyway, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. This is all by the by. This is just colour. Emma sat down. Immediately, a friend of Bill's, uh, an incredibly handsome guy called Ross, uh, apologised for bothering her, but, he, uh, but asked if she was a model. And she said, not yet. And he said he had an agency which specialised in representing women who could be in the young prime of perfect motherhood, about 35. He clarified. Yeah, she said, perfect. She's 41. And he said he'd found one of his top models in this very restaurant, actually. And could it be that lightning might be striking a second time? Could it be, said Emma. He said she looked wonderful, perhaps she needed to, you know, well, just a tiny bit after Christmas. Everyone does. But he could see she was committed to that already. So no need to say more. And he'd see her tomorrow, except he was flying to New York to try to persuade Reese Witherspoon to move up an age category and various other things. And he would be back in early Feb. And could he call her then? Emma was thrilled by this. And she ate her, not totally surprised, but thrilled. And she ate her homeo-vegetarian feast. Everyone around her was saying how amazing and delicious it was and, and how full they were. And in the toilet, a 25-year-old actress told Emma that she was 42 this year, uh, which was going a bit far, but Emma ate it up. And the homeo-vegetarian diet had changed her life. And she had it for breakfast and supper. And for lunch every day, she had two rivita and some fat-free yogurt. And she literally felt bloated. Uh, at the end of the meal, Bill asked her if any food had ever filled her up so little and Emma said no it's amazing and so she asked Bill for some of his recipes. Bill he's quick on his feet and he said that uh, concentrating the vegetables in this way is not easy it takes hours of careful attention but he was actually just offering a new service whereby uh, uh, he would deliver freshly made homeo vegetarian dishes locally every three days. Emma asked if she could freeze them and sort of get a big batch, and he said, no way, uh, which, you know, that was quite convincing to Emma. He also said that it's just a detox diet, and you obviously should eat other things. You'll never be strong enough to be, to go uh, totally homeo-vegetarian. Almost no one is, uh, which he wondered if that might cover him legally. And anyway, she took this as an insult and a challenge, which is what he intended. So for the last three weeks, Bill has been delivering old vegetable water to Emma's house every couple of days at a cost of £17 per serving. And she has been feeling worse and worse. Uh, we, we, we're, we're OK with the whole thing because we know she's not sticking to the diet. Grace sees her every week uh, to do her nails and reports that her bin is full of guilty pizza cartons and half-eaten Jaffa cakes. So you know, we're not frightened for her health. That's the key thing. Uh, we are frightened 
uh, not Bill. He's delighted, but he doesn't really know Emma. We are frightened just a bit of what Emma might do when she finds out what's happened. But that's, uh, well, I mean, she hasn't yet. And uh, that, such as it is, is the news from Kilburn. Okay, now the first musical interlude today is a song called There Will Be Rooms, which some live viewers will already have had the joyful opportunity to see, especially if they also watched uh, uh, Marie Phillips's A la carte uh, story cycle. And, uh, and it was written by uh, Tim Sutton, who wrote music, and Susanna Pierce, who wrote the lyrics. And this is sung by Tim. Many more friends than fit our tables We're going to have to improvise There will be wine that's spilled on carpets There will be marks we can't get out Many more plates we smash in kitchens When we get drunk and fall about We will use napkins We'd almost forgotten we own None matching glasses and forks that we had to be loaned. There will be food and wine and people. There will be crisps and joy and tea. Many more nights of friends together, sharing our noise contentedly. There will be rooms There will be rooms There will be rooms Thank you, Tim. I mean, it's almost like he's here. Uh, next, we will have uh, Anna Savory in a uh, sort of relatively uh, late live Tall Tales, or maybe mid-live Tall Tales uh, story from her, uh, from, from the mid-savory period, as we call it. What don't you know about Anna Savory? Who knows what you don't know about Anna Savory? I bet you don't know that uh, during lockdown she's been uh, drinking, not in a problematic way, but uh, more than most people ever will do, unless they're in the Royal Navy, uh, Grog. That has become one of Anna Savory's drinks of choice. I mean, who knows whether she's happy for me to tell you, but I've told you. And uh, you know, I'm presuming that Grog is not her internet password for anything. And if it is, Anna, change your internet password. Uh, even if it is GR0G. Uh, this is Anna Savory. Recently. Not that recently, because I was on a bus. Recently, on the 205 to King's Cross. I heard a tiny 80-year-old woman answer her phone with the words, Vincent, what? What do you want? Always sorry, sorry, sorry. When will you stop? No, I don't know if I forgive you yet. I'm still deciding. Anyway, have you found the oyster I've hidden in your house? A group of similarly-aged friends had laughed conspiratorially. It gave me joy on a deep level, but it did not give me hope for the future of relationships. 
especially not when I set it alongside things I'd recently heard, not on buses, but on dates. I think if aliens were going to selectively breed people as pets, I'd be the one they'd start with, because I've got a good temperament and young-looking eyes. This, apropos of nothing, as if in his mind he wasn't on a Tinder date at all, but on a post-apocalyptic reboot of Blind Dates, when the Cillabot 8000 had said, Tell our lovely lady why the overlords are going to use you as breeding stock, Chuck. Another man. You look like Matilda. Only not the actual Matilda, because she's quite ugly now. You look like what Matilda should have aged into, only fatter. And let me tell you about the different beard styles I've had from 2006 to the present day. I mean, really, that sort of thing, it's just not inspiring. Not that I'm some dating dream. The reason I was on the 205 to King's Cross and able to hear that woman's revenge reveal at all is because my fear of travelling by tube has become so intense and insane. I don't know anyone who actively enjoys an enclosed space. But still. Are you worried someone's going to explode you? My friend asked. I wish that were my fear, because I think on some level that's everyone's fear. But my fear is more along the lines of a Sarah Kane play. My fear is when the tube stops between stations, it's going to be held there, in the dark, stationary, forever. Maybe the driver's died or gone mental, probably first one then the other, so there'll be no announcements. Or maybe just announcements of him laughing or gagging, probably first one then the other and then no announcements. Silence. You can't contact the outside, of course. You're hermetically sealed in a metal can, miles below the surface of London. No one is going to try to come and find it, and you and everyone else in your carriage will have to form a makeshift society. A cruel, harsh society. And eventually, after a week, ankle-deep in waste, you'll eat each other. That's my fear. I don't lead with this stuff on dates but my new strange travel arrangements to accommodate it mean that I'm frequently very late. Between this, my startling resemblance to Mara Wilson, and the fact that over a hundred moths have infested my flat's dry goods, and as a result, my clothes and hair do often contain stray moths, it's been a hard few romantic months. One date consisted of a 40-minute discussion of constitutional Swedish law that I realised 15 minutes in I was ill-equipped to keep pace with. I tuned out and watched a moth bite its way out of my fringe and take flight across the restaurant. I wanted to tell him that I wasn't some sort of idiot, but that perhaps if I could have a reading week before the second date I'd be able to contribute more. He also presented me with a text in Italian. He said he'd find a short easy piece with some vocab in his native dialect, and what he gave me was a classical piece in the Passato Romerto the weirdest tense of all, about tyranny that he wanted to use as a springboard for further political discussion in either language. My Cambridge interview was easier than that. He gave it to me and then he went to the toilet so I'd have time to look it over and I turned to the two girls on the table beside me and asked feverishly if either of them knew Italian. They had A-level French and holiday Spanish and we tried to piece it together. They were great. Hilarious. Should have formed a triad with the two of them. When my date was unimpressed by our combined efforts to fathom the tyranny text, one of them got Tinder out under the table and started subtly scouting me out a less intense date. As a result of her, 
I found a Frenchman, very tall, very eagerly. He seemed nice. He did not present me with a series of tests in other languages. He didn't mind my constant lateness, or the wildlife adhering to me. For our second date, we met on Hammersmith Bridge and caught a bus to the Barnes Wetlands Centre. And as we went, he flipped through a leaflet about otters, and leaning over to me, pointed to a word in it. Well, what is this? he said. Antics. It's like, uh, the fun things that the otters do. Oh, he said. And then later, while we stood and watched the otters chasing each other and playing with rocks, he nudged the woman next to him and said, Ha! Look at your antics! What would you name them if you could name them? I asked. I'm great at date chat. Well, Topsy and Turvy, he said. No, wait! I'd call them both Jenkins. I thought we were really onto something good. Although after six dates, romantic, watching fireworks on the banks of the Thames kind of dates, he still hadn't kissed me. Kiss him, said everyone, as if they'd all forgotten how kissing works. It's not hitting. You can't do it quickly while they stand neutral. Both parties have to engage. You have to move in. And if the other person doesn't want to kiss you, they can move back. Or in his case, not move back but not move forward. So that I was just up in his grill for no reason. On the night of the seventh date, while walking through Hammersmith, he found a chair someone had abandoned by the river's edge. He sat on it, pulled me onto his lap, and span. Now, surely, is the time, I thought, assuming my all-up-in-the-grill position. He stroked my arm instead. You're so candid, he said. Candid? Like, honest and open? No, candid. Like Enlightenment philosophy? No, like, um, Morticia? Morticia? Are you sure you don't mean Matilda? Only fatter? He did, in fact, mean Morticia, and by Candide, he meant pale. This oddly backhanded observation was not followed up by a narratively fitting kiss. The other revelation of the conversation was the fact that he'd once been a tremendous playboy-cum-sex addict, not a bun, and now, despite meeting me on a famously sexually-geared dating app, he didn't want to have sex with me, or ever, ever kiss me. You are like rehab for me, he said. What he wanted me to be was a friend whom he would never kiss, or fuck, and only occasionally meet, but to whom he would sometimes send unsolicited and explicit and weirdly boastful erotic descriptions in Franklish. I'm not a former sex addict. I don't know what the rehabilitation process is like. Perhaps it is just that. Never kiss anyone but sexed freely. I suspect, deep down, that it is not. So, all in all, not a glowing recommendation of the dating scene, or men, or the French, but you navigate these things with only glancing blows. Morticia, then. Not even insulting. Everyone knows Caroline Jones is smoking hot, and John Astin as Gomez, playing as he does a gothic Groucho Marx, is actually my ideal man. But nevertheless, I was strangely bruised. You are pale, though. It's just because he said it in the same breath as a bizarre explanation of why he can never show you any physical affection. He probably meant it in a flattering way, said my housemate, waving a horde of moths out of our flower cupboard. She paused. Do you think the lentil moths are so attracted to you? Because, on some level, they're mistaking you for the moon. The next day, I booked my first and last tanning salon appointment. 
I'll start you on three minutes, because you're new to it, said the girl behind the counter. Do I need to buy glasses to stop my eyes from broiling in my skull? I asked. It is possible, looking back, that I might have used less evocative phrasing. She looked like she was weighing things up, assessing the size and delicacy of my eyes in opposition to the broiling power of her patented boof. Eventually she shrugged noncommittally. Yeah, just close them. Tanning booths, I now know, are made up of two chambers. The first is a changing room where you can remove as much of your clothing as you feel comfortable with. Being a naturally comfortable person in all respects, except increasingly my entire physical appearance, I removed everything. The second is an adjoining conical cancer chamber with floor-to-ceiling bulbs. It has a huge, heavy, bulb-laden door, which locks magnetically, sealing you in. When your time is up, the magnets reverse polarity or whatever, and you're set free, marginally less morticiary than when you went in. In the corner of the changing room was a meter that I walked to naked and fed nakedly with small tokens, each one representing a minute of naked tanning time. They made a sad clunking noise. Looking back, this was my first clue that something was wrong. It's the same noise parking meters take when they don't accept your coins. But my tokens didn't come shooting out again, so I presumed it must have worked. I walked into the conical cancer chamber. It was tight on all sides. The heavy door closed behind me and locked. The lights, I noticed, were not glowing very brightly. This, in retrospect, was my second clue. They were in fact hardly glowing at all, but I was new to this world. For all I knew, they'd started it on a very gentle setting, and anyway, I remembered I was meant to have my eyes closed so that they didn't fry. I closed them, and stood. I reflected on many things in my eight minutes, stood locked in a tanning booth that wasn't on. I'd like to say I thought about self-image and acceptance and the statistical impossibilities of modern dating in some way that was revelatory and heartening. What I mostly thought about, though, was how I was going to die there, unloved and nude. I rattled the door. It didn't give. At least in the nightmare tube entrapment scenario, there were other people I could talk to, perhaps form brief romantic relationships with, and eventually, when it came down to it, eat. This new situation was much worse. I could hear the salon owners talking about how they were using social media through the walls, and I called through the steel of my prison to them. Excuse me! I'm trapped in the booth! Once you get enough presence on Facebook, they were saying, that's the thing. I don't rate Twitter myself. I'm trapped! I screamed. I'm trapped in the booth! Nothing. Above my head, was a red button. It looked like the sort of thing they'd installed for people like me. People whose literal nightmares were this. A panic button. I thought, if I pressed it, if I pressed the panic button, the door would automatically unlock and I could dress with my dignity intact and leave and never come back. I pressed the panic button. An incredibly loud siren directly above my head went off, inducing in me terrible panic. I was not only trapped naked in a booth, I was trapped naked in a booth filled with sound. I tried to press it again to turn it off, but it didn't work. Are you trapped in the booth? screamed the Twitter-hating salon owner over the wailing. Yes, I'm trapped in the booth! Press the button again! she screamed. I have! It doesn't, it won't! 
we've got to get you out. Pressing the red button automatically calls the fire department. What? What sort of button does that? So they can cut me out, I screamed. Yes, they screamed back. But I'm naked in here. There was silence. So anyway, how are you finding social media as a way of growing your fucking business? I wanted to scream over the sirens and conversational lull. Okay, right, is it worth trying what we did when Julie got locked in? Said one woman to the other. That was a chilling, the unspoken precedent. I opened my eyes and scanned the floor, just in case Julie or her long-since incinerated remains had been nestling there by my feet all along. Body slam the door, they yelled. What? We are leaning on each side of the booth to move the magnets. Now take the full force of your body and slam it into the door. I did. On the third shouldering, something internal clicked and it burst open. The door. Not my shoulder. And I skittered into the holding pen, scrambling for my clothes. An old Greek woman, the mother of the owner, shuffled in, looked me up and down as I clutched my t-shirt to my chest and then jabbed at the panic button with the wrong end of a broom until it fell silent. Lesson learned then, Carolyn said my housemate, as I sat at our kitchen table, adjusting to life on the outside again. Don't alter yourself physically for anyone. Simply alter yourself in hundreds of tiny emotional and mental ways until you have more success in dating. She has a sort of brutal wisdom, and sent me to a world food shop to buy cardamom, which she claimed we could hurl with great effect at the moth hordes. I didn't bear the men of tinder any ill will, really. I was just glad to be out of the booth. Stealing myself for a return to the battlefield, I slipped some revenge oysters into the purchase too, just as a precaution. So for today's uh, Mighty Finn uh, entry, we are, I think I can do this one. It's one of the three that are currently stuck in my head and uh, one of those we haven't done for, uh, one of those we haven't done at all because there are just rights issues over that show, but we hope we will be able to put that show up. It's they're not uh, painful rights issues, they're just unresolved rights issues. Now, this is so boring. You're very kind to still be with us. Uh, another one is one that we played uh, really quite recently, but I don't think we have had The Devil Gets All the Best Tunes for uh, since May. Uh, I mean, I said, I mentioned something earlier about my filing. Let me tell you, there's no such thing as my filing in any kind of uh, coordinated way. So I'm, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I think that is right. And so this is The Devil Gets All the Best Tunes. The band in this, led by Will Barnett, is absolutely fantastic. And it is uh, not exactly the finale, but it is the climactic song, I would say, of The Devil Gets All the Best Tunes by Kate Ferguson and Susanna Pierce. And the, the songs by Susanna Pierce, of course. Uh, okay, take it away. Thank you. 
voice and fine, but what about the melody? Does it make you rise and shine, or is it more mundane? Harmony, the way you sing, is such a spiny, tingly thing. But you need something more to help you soar. That's what the tune is us for this week. We will uh, be back next Friday. We hope you have enjoyed yourself and we thank you very much for all the uh, very kind messages you send us and we thank you for the uh, coffees uh, that, I mean that is how we have to refer to them, uh, that is very kind of you and basically Basically is an overused word. I, there's, there are trends in words. Basically is an overused word. And I tell you, the one that is more, you know, here's me as a political commentator. The words 
obviously and of course are wildly overused in just general speech, but it really filters into political uh, discourse and people are constantly saying obviously and of course with things that other people would wildly disagree with. Uh, I am overusing the word wildly and uh, and sort of generally losing my flow and uh, and the time to end this would have been uh, one minute eight seconds ago according to my recording software one minute 11 seconds ago one minute 13 seconds ago. Uh, I am now going to uh, say goodbye be good uh, be well be good to each other and uh, and see you next week. Thank you.